You're listening to episode 122 of Diferente. It is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. Aristotle. I have been holding on to this quote to use at the perfect moment, and I think this might be one since we're talking about education. I'll probably bring this quote back up again in another episode because it applies to so many things that we discuss on Diferente about being open to different perspectives and getting out of our comfort zone. But before we go any further, I just want to ask you something. When was the last time you allowed yourself to entertain a thought or an idea that you didn't agree with? long enough for you to learn something before you cast it away in rejection or with harsh judgment. Relax, it's not a quiz. Just be honest with yourself. And if you're brave enough to share this thought with us, please write it in the reviews or comment on our Insta and Facebook pages. I would love to know. I'll share my own on our social media as well later this week. I mean, it's only fair, right? Okay, back to the episode. This is the fifth installment in our Access series, and this week we're discussing access and education with Dr. Rosalind Fuse-Hall, a former staff attorney for the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, who also has 25 years of experience in higher education and most recently served as the president of Bennett College, a private four-year historically Black liberal arts college for women in Greensboro, North Carolina. Dr. Fuse-Hall and I discussed some of the ways to make education more accessible and affordable. I know that's one of the biggest gripes of our generation. She also shares her thoughts on the role that non-traditional institutions have on making higher education more attainable, as well as the importance of doing your research before choosing a school and weighing debt versus future gains. Let's get started. Bienvenidos. Welcome to Diferente. My name is Maribel Quesada-Smith. I'm an expert at questioning everything who wants to bring more color into your life. I'll be coming to you every week with a little humor and a mountain of passion to share with you experiences and lessons in life, culture, creativity, and business that will inspire all of us to explore different perspectives. Don't be surprised if you find yourself motivated to shake things up. That's known to be a side effect of the Diferente life, and it's contagious. Now let's get to it. Dr. Fuse Hall, welcome to Diferente. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Maribel, for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure and an honor. Also, side note, can we talk about something for a second? So <laughs> you blended your last name with your husband's, is that correct? That's correct. What made you decide to do that? I'm just curious because this has been a very interesting topic of conversation with me and my husband over the last few years. <laughs> well, the reason I wanted to keep Fuse is because my grandfather was the first Black businessman in America's Georgia. Wow. And so Fuse is very important to me. My father also died when I was nine years old. I was very close to him. But our, our name is pretty powerful. But I also wanted to respect my husband by joining with him. And of course, I came up in the age of feminism um, in the 70s. And so a hyphenated last name was something that a lot of women, my contemporaries at the time were doing. I love that story. And I feel like so many people have interesting stories of, that correlate to their last names. And so in my experience, to ask a person to drop their last name completely is almost insulting. And I think that it's hard for a lot of people to understand that because when I decided that I was going to keep my last name, 
And I told people, I had the strangest reactions because nobody asked the man to explain themselves why they don't change their last name. And that was my reaction when people would ask me, well, why aren't you changing your last name completely? I would say, because Doug decided not to change his last name either. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the thing is, Maribel, that when I was coming up, I also encountered a lot of men who actually took their wives' last name. I have another good friend who graduated with me from law school, and he took his wife's last name, which I thought was very unique and very radical. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. And I feel like we live in such a backward society because in the United States, which is such a progressive, supposedly a progressive country, why is it that people are still having this argument about changing their last names when in other countries, like in Mexico, where I'm from, mm -hmm. nobody changes their last names anymore. It is very rare that a woman will change her last name at all. Oh, really? And all of the kids, yes, and all of the kids have both their father's and the mother's last name. I have two last names, and now I have three because of Doug's. But I have two last names. I have my mother's and I have my father's. And that's how it is. That is the beauty of America, is that we learn to acculturate and evolve over time and community by community. Right. So let's talk about your childhood. Where did you grow up? Uh, so I grew up in Fayetteville, North Carolina, which is a military town. However, I grew up on the campus of Fayetteville State University, which is a HBCU, because my father was a math professor there. And my mother taught in the county school system. She's a math teacher. So you had academia in your blood from the time you were born. And where did you go to college? I went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill at a critical time when uh, integration was becoming an increasingly more diverse student population. Uh, so my class in 1976, when I entered, was the largest number of African-American students that the institution had seen at that time. What was your dream job growing up? Oh, my dream job going, growing up was to be a fashion model in Paris. <laughs> and what stopped you? <laughs> my brother told me that any bobblehead could be a fashion model, but that if you were smart, you would go to college and do something else with your life. Oh, man. So that's what that's I did. harsh. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of harsh, but, you know, uh, as I thought about it, he was right, you know, Models have a, a limited career. But not necessarily limited brain span. Well, not true. The bobblehead part probably was not true. But the, uh, <laughs> the fact that, you know, you have a limited career. And I think what he was really trying to get me to see is that you want to be able to do things where you can do whatever you want and be your own boss uh, and be the boss of you uh, for a mm. long period of time. And so I decided to go to Chapel Hill and really kind of excelled uh, upon my senior year. I won the highest award that is given to a student by my peers and my faculty members and the university itself. It's called the Frank Porter Graham uh, Student Leadership Award. So, well, that's amazing. But how long did it take you to decide what you wanted to do with your career? Did you know after you got to college or when did you decide? Oh, no, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. I admired a lot of the women that were on our campus, especially African-American women. And this woman was uh, very active on campus. 
she had leadership roles and I bumped into her one day on my way to class and I asked her what she was doing and she said she was in law school. And I was like, oh, law school. I said, do you have to write a dissertation for that? And she said, no. I said, okay, great. Then I'm going to go to law school. And I went to law school at Rutgers School of Law in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, Of course, I went right into the practice of law right after law school, uh, but I didn't like it. I, I, I got an internship with the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission in the New York Regional Office. And I actually, uh, as a result of that, was offered to come and join them after a brief federal freeze. And I had a clerkship before that. I checked all the boxes that you check to go into corporate law firms. However, and I had clerked at a nice boutique firm in Marsville, New Jersey, which is a very, very respectable firm and had that experience. I uh, had pretty good grades, uh, was active in my law school, but I got no offers to go to a corporate law firm at all. And even after I practiced at the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is a stepping stone for most people to go into security firms or firms that work with se- the securities industry, I probably went on five different interviews and didn't get any callbacks. So. What about your peers that were men? Were they getting callbacks? Men and white women. <laughs> yes. African-American men, somewhat, uh, yes. White women, white men, for sure. I mean, the average time that most junior attorneys stayed at the SEC was about two to three years, and then they were scooped up by firms. And people were getting offers all around us. But it's okay, because I, life turned out pretty well for me. I came into academia and the rest is history. So can we back up just a little bit? Because I want to explore the story that you shared about how you couldn't get a job in a corporate law firm. When I moved here, I I think we moved here in 96. So forgive me, I don't know the exact timing when affirmative action became a thing. When did affirmative action come into place? Well, the affirmative action law was signed in the 60s. Uh, It became more relevant in the 70s. So surely affirmative action was in play when I was there. But once again, what people felt to remember is that affirmative action really is for public places. And so most law firms are private. So while they should do it, while it is now they understand the benefits of it, back then it was still sort of something that public entities had to do and private entities not so much. And if they had one person of color, then they had diverse (laughs) in their minds. I I keep a uh, cartoon that says it shows law firm of, let's just say for, I forget the name on it, but it's like law firm of Kennedy, Kennedy and Kennedy. And you see three desks and you see the grandfather, the father and the son, and their names are all Kennedy, Kennedy, Kennedy. And they say, this diversity thing doesn't have anything to do with us, does it? <laughs> wow. And that's that's how it went. And that's how it went. Yeah. In the 80s, did they make you, I don't know, again, because <laughs> I wasn't around. In the 80s, did they make you check a box with your race when you applied to a job? Or how did they find out until the interview? Well, yes, when you interviewed. Okay. So it, it wasn't in the application. It was at the interview. Yes. Gotcha. And did you... F- get a sense of that coldness or during the interviews, did you get a sense that they were not as interested once you showed up? Yes. 
You have to remember, I have a very English name. My name back then was Rosalind Fuse. Uh, And so I think that's one of the reasons why I would get interviews. You know, and I had a pretty good resume. Uh, I had clerked uh, for a a judge. Uh, Clerkships were, you know, very uh, prestigious things. Uh, I had worked at the SEC as an intern and then was working there as an attorney. I had gone to Rutgers School of Law, which is, you know, a pretty good school. Um, And so I think that's the reason I got the few interviews that I did get. And then when I would show up six feet tall, 105 pounds, African-American, and you would have the perfunctory interview. And then they would say, you know, thank you very much for your interest. We'll get back with you. And then pretty soon you get the letter to say, thank you so very much for your interest. However, uh, you were not selected at this time. Wow. And I'm sure you had recommendations and everything. So this must have been, I guess, was it surprising to you? Did it come as a shock or were you expecting that reaction? Well, it was surprising in the sense that I knew that there were other colleagues who, there were 21 of us that came in in my class at the SEC at the time. And uh, they were leaving, going to big firms and you knew they didn't nearly have the experiences that you had. But it was okay with me because it wasn't what I wanted to do in my life. And so I made that decision. It was a tough decision. I didn't know where it was going to lead to. But I can tell you that when I did it, there were a lot of my colleagues at the SEC who commended me for being so brave and courageous because they said, I could never do this. I could never, I don't love what I'm doing now, but I can never take the step to change my career. I didn't see it as changing my career. I just saw it as another step on the path of my career. And at the time, I had every intention of coming back to the law. It just didn't work out that way. And this story just proves how there are so many factors that go into play when it comes to getting access and opportunities in our careers. For example, not only do you need access to a great education, but you also need access to the right people who will recommend you and who will champion you. And we need people in these organizations that care about diversity and that care about championing people of all backgrounds so that we can grow collectively. And I think that that was clearly, obviously, missing at that time and sadly still kind of misses. <laughs> well, you know, and that's, I think, I think that is what became the motivating factor for me to become one of those people in middle to upper management who could help foster that. And trust me, Mara Bell, there were people in, in my early career, middle career, and, and currently who are champions for me. And I think that's the reason I've been able to experience as much success as I have experienced. But I also believe that I have a great faith and I believe that God ordains you to be where he needs you to be at the time. And I would never begrudge my experience with the SEC because it taught me a lot of life lessons that I was able to build on. But the piece that you just Mm -hmm. mentioned about having champions and, and getting people to understand the value of diversity and why it's so important not to be in that Kennedy, Kennedy, Kennedy type of firm, but to have diverse ideas. Because the more research you read, it's all talks about, it's the diversity of ideas and perspectives about a problem that create the best solutions. 
And so in order for me right. to do that, I thought it's important for me to be a person that young people coming out of college or going through college can turn to, to bounce ideas off of, to encourage them to go after their dreams, to encourage them that they do have the intelligence, the wherewithal, the experiences to reach any goals that they set for themselves. And I could best do that on a college campus, you know, and so that became my life's work. And diversity crosses so many different levels or boundaries, so to speak. You know, it's not just ethnicity and race, but we're talking about also gender, age. I think it's very important to include people of, of different ages when we're making solutions to new problems or trying to come up with ideas. Because again, you have very different perspectives that come from all over that only people who have diverse experiences can share and can speak to. And so maybe we focus sometimes only on diversity when it comes to ethnicities, but we forget that we also need to be diverse when it comes to age, because with, with age comes a lot of experience, but also even the inexperienced have interesting things to share and bring to the table. I think you're exactly right. And I believe as more people are living longer and staying in the workplace longer, that we're beginning to see that. And as uh, I think for the last three or four years, I know that there have been a lot of conversations in higher education around the fact that this is the first time in American employment experience you have so many different age groups with different value systems working in the same offices. So you have people who grew up or went to school in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 2000s, all still working in the same area, but they have very, very different value systems. And so there have been lots of conversations about the values of different generational groups so that people have an understanding that the approaches are different because people over time value things differently because of their life experiences. But if you can capitalize on how to bring out the best in those kind of perspectives and conversations. And if you can encourage that so that everybody in the C-suite is not the same generation and the same age, same ethnicity or gender, then you're going to have a better product. You're going to have better management. And it's been proven that businesses that value diversity, not only on their corporate boards, but also in the C-suites, also perform better and make more money. So that's the message that has to get across. I'm interrupting this awesome episode to ask you a favor. Will you take a few seconds to leave a review? Tell me what other topics you would like to hear on the show. It takes less than 30 seconds to write a review and you can help change lives. Okay, I mean, that might be an exaggeration, but that's the kind of impact that Diferente is all about. A brighter outlook, a different perspective, all of this can be life transforming. So let's jump forward. You started your career in education after law didn't necessarily pan out for you. And you made that shift, which actually really paid off because most recently in up until 2016, you were the president of the all women HBCU Bennett College in Greensboro. Is that correct? That's correct. And why did you decide to go to that specific 
college? One was because it was in my home state of North Carolina, which I just absolutely love. Two is because it was an, it was a woman's college. And I really believe in advocating um, for women and having that all female environment, I think is a special kind of place. It's historic in the sense that uh, Bennett College and Spelman College are the only two remaining all female, formerly all African-American female, uh, historically black college or university in the country. So it's a very, very unique and historic place. And it uh, sits among four other institutions, very diverse backgrounds in the city of Greensboro. It's a perfect place to be if you want to have stimulating conversations, uh, incubator for bright uh, young minds, and, and it's a beautiful campus. Can you please explain the cultural significance of historically Black colleges and universities and how they came to exist? In the 1800s, African-Americans could not get an education. A lot of times they went to the North and were able to enroll in small liberal arts colleges uh, in the North. However, there were many in the North who really did not want to see a plethora of these students coming from the South into the North and going into these colleges and universities. And so oftentimes there were many foundations in the North who would help people in the South start their own colleges and universities. And so that's why in the South, you see the highest number of historically Black colleges and universities. There's some sprinkled in the North, but for the most part, uh, between Virginia and Texas is where you're going to find the bulk of the 108 that still exist. So in the 50s and the 60s, you just see probably the largest number of African-American students going to colleges and universities. And then, of course, in the 70s, and when integration was becoming the way of the land, you more of these students had opportunities then to go to other places. And nowadays, as uh, some HBCUs are beginning to experience and people are beginning to realize, it's not just for Black students. It's for a student who doesn't want to be at a campus that has 20,000 students on it, and they're just a number in a seat in a classroom. So whether you're white or Hispanic or Asian or Native American, these campuses have always been welcoming. After integration, um, popular media began to pigeonhole that, oh, it's just a haven for Black people. And yet when you walk on these campuses, you see more diverse faculty than you see at other campuses. You see more diverse student bodies and student populations. But it's a place where people of color can feel empowered and are empowered to live up to their full potential. And can you talk about the work you are doing now? So now I uh, am the Director of Legal and Governmental Affairs and Commission Support at the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools Commission on Colleges. And it is an accrediting agency that accredits colleges and universities throughout the 11 states from Virginia through uh, Texas uh, on certain criteria to ensure that they are meeting the rigor and the demands of quality and integrity for 
academic experiences for students that are there. There's, we also serve as the gatekeepers because if you're accredited by SAC CLC in these 11 Southern states, then you have access to federal funds, so federal financial aid. Thank you for my segue, because I was going to ask you, what are schools or organizations doing in the current time to provide better access to quality education? Well, I think every school has uh, its mission. Part of its mission is to uh, ensure that the students that they have enrolled there get a good quality experience, not only academically, but also with the skills that are be needed for the workforce uh, in the future. And so you have uh, all of our campuses are working on projects around student achievement, student success, uh, student outcomes, trying to ensure that they have the best faculty, the best physical facilities, the best fiscal stability on their campuses. Uh, and these are some of the criteria upon which we assess uh, their abilities to ensure that those things are happening on the campus. And as far as access to education, we know that it's incredibly expensive and it's only gotten more expensive over the last few years. I was just talking to a friend the other day. She wants to go to law school and she said it was going to be almost $200,000 to go to law school. And I almost fainted <laughs> thinking about like how you're going to repay that. So is there anything going on in these education organizations or in these schools? Are there any talks about how we can make education more affordable? What are we doing to make it more accessible in that sense? Well, I think everyone is concerned about the high cost of education and making sure that it's not a barrier uh, to prevent students from going on. There are two things that I, I want to emphasize. One, if your friend did not go on to law school, would she try to buy a house? If she would, she's probably going to spend about $200,000. It's an investment. And that's the way I like to, to say to people when they say, oh, but the high cost of it. Yes, but it's an investment in your future. So, and you don't have to pay it all back the day after you graduate. You pay it back over years. Aren't the interest rates much higher on college loans? No, the interest rates are pretty low. Depends upon the type of loan that you get. But for loans that you get through the school, I don't think the interest rates have gotten much higher than three, two to three percent on the loans. Now, if you have to refinance your loan afterwards, that may be something different. But uh, for the loans that have been associated with colleges and universities that I've worked with, they usually are somewhere around two to four percent, but no more than that. And once again, you're talking about an investment that you're making, but over your lifetime with a college degree, you're going to make $1 million more than a student who has a high school diploma. So you, the, and the likelihood of you having not only a better job, but also having a mortgage, being able to get married, being able to have a retirement plan over time is what I want people to focus on, not on the immediate sticker shock of the price of an education. And there are all types of schools that don't all cost $72,000 a year to go to. And a lot of times that's the thing. Most people are looking at the most prestigious, the most expensive schools with those kinds of numbers. 
for instance, been to college, I think costs about $21,000, $22,000 a year to go, whether you're in-state or out-of-state, because it's private. And you get a great education, and we've had students to graduate from there and go on and do some pretty incredible things and get all kinds of recognition for what they're doing. But most people don't look at that. They look at Harvard, Yale, Santa Barbara, and Mm -hmm. other places like that, which may have a higher price tag. What's the downside like of picking a college or university that is not necessarily, quote, in the same level as I Harvard or even let's just go like an Ohio State or schools like that? What's the downside? Because I think a lot of people do do have that concern. If I pick a school that's too small or doesn't have certain accreditations or certain notoriety, I'm not even going to be able to get a job. But that's not true. There are smaller schools that are accredited, that have wonderful programs that don't you don't hear about, that have outstanding alums that you don't ordinarily hear about, that could be a perfect school for you. And they don't all have to be 500 people. There, There's lots of schools out there that have 3,500 students that have terrific programs that are number one in their area. You just have to do more research than just the first five Google topics that come up to find them and talk with people about them. I met a banker yesterday. She graduated from Converse University. And I was like, oh my goodness, I know that school. She's like, yeah, it was a great school. I, I had a wonderful time there. As I said, we had graduates at Bennett College. One of our graduates was identified as one of the top 10 innovators by Barack Obama um, for her work with uh, technology. She's a Bennett graduate. All right. So, so there are schools out there. Like I said, they're not the top five items that come up on Google. But that doesn't mean it's not going to be a good school and you're not going to thrive there just because they're not on the front of some magazine. And that would be my next question. What would you recommend people do when they're considering a higher education, whether it be college, master's, PhD, whatever, law school? What would you recommend that they do in their selection of schools? Because you mentioned that you can still get a job. You can still get a great job, even if you don't go to a school that's very well-known or prestigious. So what are the things that people need to be looking for in making that decision that so that they have the peace of mind that they're investing into something that's actually going to pay off? Because I think that's the biggest fear is, oh my God, I'm going to invest $100,000 and people are going to look at me like, oh, you went here? Well, I'm going to hire the person that went to Ohio State over the person that went to University of Phoenix, for example. Yes, I had a, a board member who used to say, if people don't value you, they, they don't d- deserve your talent. So what I would say to them is to talk to a lot of the people that they want, that they admire, um, that they want to study with and find out where they went to school. And I think what they're going to find is, oh, my goodness, they didn't go to Ohio State University as an undergraduate. They went to A&T. I never knew that. Right. Because most people don't look at that when you've been successful. You want to go somewhere where you can be nurtured, you can be identified, you can excel and you can grow and bloom and blossom. And so having conversations with your favorite teacher, where did they go to school or someone that you admire or that you would like to be your mentor 
Where did they go to school? Where did their mentors go to school? Looking at where people studied that you want to do work with. So if you want to do social work and you know a great social worker in your church or in your yoga class, ask that person where they went to school and what their experience was. And would they encourage someone else to go there? That's what I would say to students about doing it. And then the second part, are people concerned about the high cost? Yes, I think we have five or six different articles every day in our trade journals that talk about the high cost of education. Part of it is because we have such low assistance coming for public institutions from our state legislators. That's uh, incredibly sad because they're not investing in the future. Uh, however, you know, that's why it's important for you to vote and understand how people feel about education going forward and whether they're willing to invest in your future because young people, education is the key uh, going forward. Uh, the second thing is uh, looking at the cost of educational materials and how we can help control some of those costs. The cost of textbooks is just astronomical. And in my mind, the textbook industry has become a monopoly. So how do we make it in this age of virtual technology a little bit more affordable for all students to have access to the materials that they need? So so this is a complicated uh, question and issue, uh, but we all have a part to play in it, including those of us who give back to our institutions that allow for scholarships and book scholarships, as well as uh, to help with tuition and fees. What about non-traditional universities or programs? For example, I, I got my MBA at the Vrai University. I chose the Vrai University because it was what I could afford. And it made sense to me. I did my research. I liked their program. And I learned a lot through their program. In fact, we had to present our final um, capstone project in front of University of Maryland professors and board members. And they told us that they were impressed by our presentation to the point where they understood that our curriculum was just as rigorous as many other state schools. But people sometimes look at non-traditional universities and, you know, they think that it's just not good enough or they don't believe that they can actually succeed by going to a non-traditional university. What do you think about those options? Well, I, I mean, I think that's the great thing about living uh, in this country at this particular time is that you do have so many varieties and options of things you can do. Certainly 10 to 15 years ago, when many of these virtual campuses were coming online, uh, you know, people didn't know very much about them. They didn't know how they were going to operate. And we have had some failures over the last few years that have really put students in a bind because they've gotten financial aid, which was not to their benefit. And some of these campuses have closed. Mm -hmm. So I would say to students, be very, like you were, be very, very cautious, but do your research. And there are plenty of uh, virtual institutions out there or online un universities that have established themselves, that have plenty of graduates that can give you testimonials about their success. You have many of the traditional colleges and universities now offering hybrid programs where you do part of them online and part of them face-to-face. So there are many options, and that's a great thing. And that's what I did. I took some courses online, and I also took in-person classes. And it was a great experience because I was able to work 
while I went to school. Exactly. Nowadays, you see a lot of state universities and private universities doing the exact same thing. They're doing master's programs online for people who live not even in the same state. In fact, my brother did his MBA at the same time that I was doing mine. He was doing his at Penn State University online. And then he only had to go to the university two weeks out of the year. That's right. That's right. Because because the great thing about education is that you're always learning. And even educational institutions learn. And so I think what virtual institutions taught traditional brick and mortar institutions is that you don't have to just take traditional students who are 18 to 23 years old to come to your place-based campus and be able to excel. And so you see a lot of hybrids and a lot of different things, but don't just get confused by a new place that pops up, that has no record, that um, offers cheap because you get what you pay for. And if they close up tomorrow, then you're going to be out of luck because you will have wasted their financial aid for that particular time. And you only have a limited amount of semesters that you're going to be eligible for financially. So just be cautious. Yeah. Do you think you would be where you are today without access to the education that you have received? Absolutely not, because education is what fostered my grandmother to encourage all of her children to go on and get education. And they, in turn, pushed their children to go on. I saw what it meant for them. I know how hard they work as educators themselves. So, no, I would not be the person I am today if it were not for education uh, and all different types of, of education going all the way back to normal schools back in the early, at the dawn of the 20th century when my grandmother uh, was working there. I have two more questions for you. What is your passion and how do you define success? My passion is making sure that students understand they can go on after high school and get uh, more training and credentials and that it's something that's worth the investment, not only of their time, but also of their talent. And I have this wonderful quote here about success. Now, I, I, I love uh, Sunday mornings. And uh, they did a story on a young man who decided to become a swimmer. He could not swim at all. And he decided to become a swimmer because he said, if I couldn't handle not being good at something, how could I consider myself successful? He was a great basketball player, great football player, but he couldn't swim. And he knew he couldn't swim. And he was the worst on the team when he started. But he said that just motivated him. And by the end of his career, he was winning medals. And they said, well, why would you want to do that? If you'd just been a football player, basketball player, you know, you could have been great. And he said, if I couldn't handle not being good at something, how could I consider myself successful? So that's my definition of success right now. That's from Gerald from Arlington, Texas. Gerald, you're my hero. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Dr. Fuse Holm. And don't forget about the question that I asked at the beginning of the episode. If you feel brave enough to share please share it on the comments of our Instagram or Facebook page. You can find the links in the show notes or on our website at diferentepodcast.com. Stay tuned for the final installment of the Access series, where we will be discussing access and networking. 
with networking expert Wendell Haskins, entrepreneur and founder of the golf lifestyle brand, The Original Tea. Thank you for listening to Diferente. If you liked this episode, let me know by leaving a five-star review and by sharing a screenshot of this podcast on Instagram or Facebook. Just don't forget to tag me at Adiferente Life so I can know you're listening. Hasta pronto.